Welcome to the Classical Happy Hour. I'm your host, Martin Davids. This is the show where we talk about music while enjoying a tasty beverage. Then we try to play some music together. Today's guest is John Mark Rosendahl. How you doing, John? Very well. The better for seeing you, Marty. It's great to have you on the show. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is maybe you could tell me a little about how you started playing music. Did you start on the cello or what instrument did you play? Um, my first musical instrument was the piano. So my, um, my, my parents took me to piano lessons with the neighborhood music teacher as one does. You know, and then she moved away and I didn't have piano lessons for a little while. And then they got to know this amazing, amazing woman named Phyllis Jansma, who was teaching piano in the next town over. Um, just this wonderfully, wonderfully charismatic woman with an amazing uh, family. Her, her, her husband was a fantastic artist, and um, and uh, Phyllis was just such a loving and colorful personality. And she was teaching piano to something like forty uh, or maybe more uh, school children. So, uh, so my parents took took. Uh, took my brother and me to her for piano lessons and my my brother advanced much faster than I did and um, when he uh, was good enough to play the first uh, Bach prelude uh, from the Weltenberg Klavier the very first piece in C uh, she got out her cello and you know the Guno Ave Maria is composed to go over the harmonies of the so she got out her cello and played the Guno Ave Maria with with my brother uh, on, on the piano and I was I was enthralled. I just said I have to do that. I have to. <laughs> so, was that the first time you heard a cello? Yes, yeah, yes, it was. So I said I just have to do that. And um, this was in the spring. And and Phyllis, you know, Mrs. Jansma, said, "Well, you know, I don't start new cello students uh, in the summer." And and I said I have to do that. And so, so she she made an exception and and started me on the cello right away. So how old were you then? I was 10. You were 10? So, so a, a late beginner for the cello, but that was actually before the Suzuki era, or, or, or that, was, that would have been 1970, so just like Suzuki had barely hit the United States at that moment. So did you give up the piano at that point, or did you do both? I, I kept on taking piano lessons, and so I never excelled at the piano, but I kept on taking lessons, and, you know, and did proficiencies in, in college as one does, but I'm not a good keyboard player. So you were enthralled by the cello, but did you did you think that's what you were going to do with your life, or did you think about that at all at that point? Um, I don't know whether I was thinking about what I would do with my life, but um, uh, uh, when I was in school, like, my, like my, my favorite topics were all in, in the arts and humanities. I was taking French classes and art history, um, and and you know and literature enthralled me. So I, I, uh, I yeah, I was fascinated by the, the arts and humanities, and I was kind of repulsed by the by the sciences. So, so I was going to do something in, in humanities or arts. Cool. So, how did you uh, end up on the Baroque cello? Um, 
or is that a much later evolution of it was well it was kind of a, a gradual evolution i i uh i uh was doing my undergraduate work at western illinois university which in the 70s was a remarkable place to be studying music um my teacher Tan- tanya carey and roland and almeda vamos sort of transformed this little tiny school on the prairie into what was for a few years a conservatory it, it, it was uh, teaching music at a just shockingly high level for what the, what the context was so and you know i had always loved playing the the accompanying suites of bach that was just sort of in in me uh that i i loved playing the, those pieces and so my, my teacher uh, you know uh, uh, in the uh, tanya she taught a chamber music literature course and she gave me uh Charles Sanford Terry's book on on Bach's orchestra to read and it described how the instruments in Bach's time were all different from the instruments uh of of today and again that just fascinated me and I craved to hear what that sounded like um so then she uh then she sent me to the library to listen to Harnoncourt's recording of the of the Brandenburg concertos and that just blew me away I just couldn't couldn't believe how wonderful that was but I was living in Macomb Illinois and I just sort of sort of never had any idea that that would be possible for me me to do that uh, um it just it just registered with me as being a, a fantastic thing but sort of as fate had it I I went to graduate school again to do modern cello at the Cleveland Institute of Music and um the the first day I was there the the registrar had had assigned me all of my classes and one of the classes that he had put me in was music bibliography with Dr. Seuss the, the man's <laughs> name was Dr. Seuss and we we sat around a table in a in a in a in a musty library room for for 2 hours uh talking about indexes and catalogs and dictionaries and you know I just bruised my forehead on the table multiple times <laughs> and I walked out of that class directly back to the registrar and said and I said I can't do that give me anything else to do and and he said well I think I could get you into Ross Duffin's performance practice class so and that was that was life changing I mean Ross had a fantastic class on um on how historically informed performance is done what the sources are how you how you think about this stuff and 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 I loved that process and that that whole I- idea of of studying how music was made in the in the past and and finding out what we can learn from that and um uh it actually um it it worked so so well in my head partly because my father is a preacher and so one of the disciplines of of preaching is what is exegesis which is close study of the text of the scriptures to understand their meaning um and so uh, the historically informed performance kind of close reading of texts and understanding of their context uh to uh to uh to to get at their significance and meaning that that really really 
uh, resonated with me. I was actually very, very um, kind of disappointed in or scoffed at my uh, my contemporaries and you know the, the other students in school who seemed to me to be just wildly incurious about the about the sources of of what we were doing on the cello. I mean, there were people who would who would take you know Leonard Rose's edition of the Haydn Concerto and 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 not ever question any mark in it or where this material comes from. It just I thought that seemed strangely not curious. And whereas I wanted to to get were text editions or um, primary sources. And back then, there, there weren't millions of facsimiles available everywhere. So actually, it was harder to get at stuff. In, it was all so much harder to get at stuff in 1980. You can't, it's unimaginable. That's only 40 years ago. But it was even, even in a school like Cleveland, it was so much harder to, um, to find m manuscripts or, or even clean editions of everything. But I mean, even that's in what we 2000, did. when I was at IU, there weren't so many facsimiles, but the, you know. the difference in, in access to material then. And as I said, um, at, um, uh, af after I, when I read that book by Charles Sanford Terry, I craved to hear those sounds. And at that time, very, very little of the Baroque repertoire had been recorded or performed on period instruments. So I sort of like witnessed right away the, like the first time uh, you know, the, the works of Bach and, and, and Handel and Mozart were, um, were uh, performed and recorded on period instruments. So in the 80s, that was an extremely exciting time. So how did you end up with a Baroque cello? Did, you, did anybody have one there? I, I can't remember who it was who got my first Baroque cello in my hands, whether it was Ross who helped me out with that, or it could have been... Kathy Mainz, but somehow I got a like a uh, you know two hundred dollar um, antique Bohemian cello. I mean, and you know back then like sort of factory made Bohemian cellos were uh, were cheap objects, even though they were even though they were actually had had kind of nice sounds. So I got that set up with with gut strings, and that's how I got started. Nice. So, at what point did you uh, discover the viola de gamba? Well, again, sort of my romance with the uh, viola de gamba started early and developed very, very gradually. So, um, my teacher at, at Western Illinois University, I can't, I can't praise her enough. She's still teaching uh, in Chicago, and she, she introduced me to everything. Uh, she, she, she teaches pedagogy and she teaches the, the concerto solo repertoire and she teaches and, and performs, I mean she's performed the concerto solo repertoire and she's performed chamber music and she performs as, as an orchestra player. So she introduced me to everything and she, uh, she played the viola da gamba and um, had arranged for Western Illinois University to get a, a chest of vials from the Viola de Gama Society. So I had a, just a, a, a small introduction to what it was. And again, it wasn't something I thought was going to be big in my life, right? It wasn't a thing I expected to have an opportunity to do. 
but um, but I loved it already when I was in my teens at Western Illinois, and then um, I uh, I went to the Cleveland Institute, as I say, and um, and I heard Katharina Mikes play the viola da gamba, and that was that, that was like my my first experience with the cello. I I heard Kathy, and I said I have to do that, so. I so I started dabbling in it, and uh, it was actually when I moved to Chicago that I started to commit to daily practice and try to to try to really really learn the instrument. Um, and it was in Chicago that I I learned to play the instrument almost self-taught. Um, I I used my notes from Kathy Mainz's classes at uh, the Baroque Performance Institute at Oberlin. And I had on-the-job training with with Mary Springfields because I had the sort of incredible good fortune uh, to be able to work with with Mary Springfields early on in my Violetta Gamba life. So Mary was playing the Gamba, and did she like sort of school you on it at all, or? Um, Mary was very, very busy, and you know, even though there were very few Viola da Gamba students in the world, uh, she she didn't have much time to teach while she was developing the Newberry Consort and having a touring. So it was hard to get a lesson with Mary. I didn't have very many lessons with uh, with Mary, uh, so I'd be exaggerating, I think, if I said I was ever her student. <laughs> um, but uh, I owe her an immense debt of gratitude because she is such a compelling model for any any Viola da Gamba performer. Um. Cool. Um, you mentioned that your dad was a preacher. Um, is that kind of like the family business or? That is the family business. Um, my, it's not just my father. It's it's my uncles and many of my aunts and my brother and my grandfather, um, all preachers in different denominations, but mainly um, the Reformed Church in America, which uh, many people know as the Dutch Reformed Church. So, did were they thinking you would follow in their footsteps, or were you thinking that ever? It crossed my mind, and like I was the firstborn son, and like there, there were times when I had this sort of feeling like maybe it was destined or expected to do that. And um, you know, the mission of 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 community and and the mission of helping people to heal their souls is it's it's compelling um but i ultimately was persuaded that you know in my in my way of thinking the church as it is is not a great vehicle for doing those things but that's that's my personal stance at the moment so you you weren't called to become a preacher but were you called to become a, a musician? Um, I just loved it so so much. It, I I just I it was what I wanted to do. It, uh, music moved me, and 
Um, and actually, I'm I'm coming to re to realize that actually, sort of music, sort of saved my life many, many, many times, and it continues to do that um, because um, uh, because music has powers to calm the mind, and it um, and you know one of the purposes of music is is emotional regulation. It's emotional regulation, and um, um, uh, John Cage's teaching teacher the, his of music, the Indian teacher who who John Cage consulted, told John Cage that the purpose of music is to is to quiet the mind and make it susceptible to divine influences. And um, uh, I've found that calming my mind and you know, emotional regulation is something that I need so badly every day. I I um, I can't myself. I can't really survive without making music every day. Well, I think there are a lot of kinds of music, and I would say, you know, if you and I sat here with two drums and just slowly beat the drums, that I'm sure it would have some effect, calming us or doing something. Mm -hmm. But that's a quite a bit different than, you know, playing a sonata together. Mm -hmm. So, I. Well, I mean, the, do you buy into that definition? I mean, isn't that a bit narrow of, of the purpose of music? Absolutely, and and that's um, one of the things that I've observed about music is that um, it's it's large; it contains multitudes, and it has many, many, many purposes. So, I mean, there's there's no being human without music. Uh, so, yeah any def definition of what its purpose is or what it is, you know, will be incomplete. I mean, it's certainly primal and I think it can bypass sort of the rational part of our brain, you know? Um, I don't know if you've ever played funerals, but some I've played at some funerals and you, you can have the experience where when you start to play, you can almost feel everyone in the room having their, I don't know, maybe suppressed feelings. They're just not able to suppress them anymore <laughs> once they hear that sound. Like you just pull it right, you know. Right. Almost like, I, you know, I was at a funeral once and it was like I could hear every mind say, oh shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just, you know, the tears. <laughs> so... I, you know, there's a, there's a power that it's hard to understand, but. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, since my father died, I almost can't go to church because I can't sing a hymn because I, I, I can't do it. Cause you, you'll feel that. I'll, I will just cry too much. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's you, make some you don't have to include that in the. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no editing. <laughs> so, what uh, what's kept you going in your life in music? Why why do you keep doing it? Oh, um, um, well, 
the reasons I just gave. It's like it it it, it saves my life. But um, as as Edwin was saying in, with his interview you, with you, it's it's the relationships that it, um, that it brings, the relationships that it that uh, that it that it supports. Um, actually, uh, a colleague just posted a, a thing on meme on 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 a farce book about you know what music does for the brain, and it it, it mentions. Um, that oxytocin, uh, the music making making music uh, stimulates production of oxytocin, which is the uh, neurochemical that makes people feel connection. Yeah, Andy Andy um, Andy Appel uh, said it in a concert for school children. He said it so simply and so beautifully. It, he said it makes us like each other better. I mean. That's definitely true, especially, you know, if you sing together in harmony or play together in harmony and it's well-tuned, that seems to make a difference as well. But, of course, not every musical experience is pleasant (laughs) (laughs) or bonding. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the, the field of music, I mean... It, it's also a, a playground for our neuroses and um, I've uh, you know I've made my suffer my, my, made myself suffer in the context of music making by wishing for things to be other than as they are you know wishing that the conductor had a different interpretation or you know or that some other colleague would do something differently from what they're doing or, or and then and then sort of cursing my my own life for having me in this situation where I have to play for this conductor I don't like. Or, I mean, this, and um, uh, and I know that I'm not alone with that. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're the jokes that say, um, "How do you get a musician to complain? Give him a gig." And it's like, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, and it's notorious that um, orchestral musicians can be extremely unhappy. And I think that's even more true, like back back in the day in the eighties and nineties. The many, many, many of the um, of the orchestral musicians uh, that I met, the people with with jobs in the Chicago Symphony and the Lyric Opera, I met a lot of people who were jaded and un and angry and un, unhappy with their jobs. I have to say, I see a lot less of that now. The people who have jobs uh, now appear to be much more grateful and, and to understand how fortunate uh, they are in that. Do you think it's just because the scarcity of of that kind of job? Absolutely. There's uh, there's so few of those kinds of jobs around, and so so much ability in 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 our country and in our world I mean so much ability in classical music yeah if you think of a you know an instrument like the oboe where there's only one or two in an orchestra right mm-hmm. and how many jobs come up in a year versus how many hotshot players come out of even one conservatory playing mm-hmm. the oboe right exactly what are they supposed to do well <clears throat> did you consider an or 
orchestral career? I took some auditions. I, you know, I mean, the training that I had taken, you know, through my master's degree, sort of like it was training for that. You know, I, I took the orchestra excerpts class in uh, uh, in in Cleveland, and and and. And of course, you know, played in the orchestra. I played lots of orchestra, small orchestra gigs early in my career, played for ballet and opera and smaller city orchestras. And uh, but ne but never, uh, I never had a big orchestra job. And actually, I would never have been good at it or really survived in it because um, because I was one of those. Um, malcontents in in the section who like uh, was dis dissatisfied with the uh, sort of lack of autonomy that you have when you're sitting in a section. Playing playing in a section is you're you're really really uh, using your craft to serve somebody else's vision and the um, uh, the the mode of operation is always to conform and always follow and um, I just always chafed at that so it, it wasn't something that I was going to be able to really excel in so what have you done to to find work where you don't feel that way <clears throat> um, well I mean I've been working on the Baroque cello and on the on the viola da gamba and um, the, you know, in while I was working in Chicago, the uh, the orchestra work that I did do uh, on the Baroque cello, um, I was always principal cello. I was always leading, and um, so that's and uh, a, a principal cello uh, uh, gig or, or place in an orchestra in a Baroque orchestra is really is a. a position of, of leadership I mean in you know arias and concertos bass lines have a, have a lot of control and then you also get to accompany singers and recitatives and continuo arias so there's there's a lot of scope in in that job and then viola da gamba uh, um, the viola the da gamba is really not an orchestral instrument it's, it's a solo and, and chamber or, uh, music instrument so you know Anything you do in a viola da gamba ensemble uh, 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 um, you you get to and are expected to have your own voice cool so um one of the other things that I'm interested in is have you had any uh you know favorite performances or favorite places that you performed that that you like to look back on? Or do you just live one day at a time? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's see. Um, you know, one, one, you know, really, really, really special project was was only a, f a few years ago. This was five or six years ago, when Lestrange Viles, this viol concert that I've been playing with, uh, we went to Oberlin where Kathy Mainz was 
kind enough to allow us to make a recording in her house, in her beautiful, beautiful house, uh, with, which has a big uh, music room with a high ceiling. And it was very nice to make a recording there. And she let us use her, her instruments. And she has this famous, famous collection of antique vials, um, French, uh, German, and English vials uh, from the uh, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Just extraordinary instruments. Um, and we, uh, the members of Lestrange Vials, we recorded an album of, um, of music from British Library Manuscript 31990, and which is the uh, book of innominates and solfying songs that in includes the uh, innominates of, of Parsons and Christopher Ty and lots of uh, music of, of William Byrd. Um, so that was, uh, that was a completely special and extraordinary um, uh, musical experience. Cool. Um, do you have anything coming up that you want to plug or that you're excited about? Um, again, uh, uh, Lestrange Files has a, has a project coming up uh, with, uh, to collaborate with New York Polyphony to record uh, music of, uh, of Nico Muley. We have a grant from the Aaron Copeland Foundation to record a, a piece by Nico Muley. I haven't heard it yet. Um, on an album uh, that will include also standards by William Byrd and Orlando Gibbons. Cool. So that's coming up this summer. The recording sessions are coming up this summer. So the last thing I want to uh, ask you is if you have any questions for me. Um, questions for you? Wow. Um, so um, well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just bat that same one back at you. Um, so uh, tell us about one of your uh, favorite performing in, uh, experiences that you'd like to remember and, and share with us. I think, you know, the first thing that pops into my mind is a, like a Bach double. I played at the Stanton Music Festival with uh, Aislinn Noski. Uh, they were supposed to be doing all the Brandenburgs on this concert, mm -hmm. but the harpsichord soloist had some kind of ailment, so they they asked us if we wanted to play the Bach double in lieu of uh, Brandenburg Five. Mm -hmm. And of course we said yes. And it was one of those events where it it was almost surreal, you know, like as soon as it the music started the atmosphere in the audience was incredible. And uh, one of the musicians said to me after, uh, and he, a Brazilian guy, he said, it was like being at a soccer match. <laughs> like the excitement. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, it was one of those where I thought, if it's really true that your life flashes before you, uh, your eyes when you die, that I would, that would be one of the things I saw. Mm -hmm. Was that amazing? Well, you and Aislinn um, are the kind of performers um, who, who uh, you know, when you walk on stage, um, although I've heard you many, many times, I don't know what's going to happen. 
Uh, that is pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful performers who, when they walk on stage, I do know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, but no, you're not one of those. <laughs> okay, well, it's been great talking to you, and now I think we're going to play something. And you'd said you wanted to play some uh, a minuet by Michael Christian Festing. Is that what we're yeah. doing? Um, yeah, you and I recorded these with here at, here at Flintwoods uh, with Karen Flint, uh, what, five or six years ago? At yeah. least. Uh, uh, with Brandywine mm-hmm. Baroque, if you guys want to look for that on Spotify or iTunes. Um, great composer. And we're going to play at least one of his minuets. Uh, we're going to take a break and be right back. Super. <laughs> Thank you. 